Well, if you want to begin turning in your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to begin our studies this morning. It has been quite a while since I have taught from the book of Hebrews here in Faith Builders. It's took us, because of weeks off and me going out of town and different things, and it took almost a year from a calendar standpoint to get through Hebrews chapter 11. So it was a long, slow walk through that chapter. And it's hard for me to believe when I was going through my notes yesterday, I realized I haven't taught on Hebrews in here in new material. I think it was May 18th the last time I spoke. That's almost four months. And it has been too long. I love teaching. I love teaching this book. And there's a sense in which our conclusion of chapter 11 really wasn't the conclusion of the thought that's in the text. As I have said before, when the Bible was originally written, so when the book of Hebrews was penned, there were not chapters and verses in the original text. Chapters and verses were added in many, many years later simply to make studying easier. They didn't have computers back then. It's hard to get. How do you know where you are? So someone went through years and years and centuries ago and put in chapters and verses. And quite often they're they're natural divisions and they have stayed with us. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the reality is the flow of thought was cut off too soon. Hebrews chapter 11 really shouldn't have ended as it did in our English Bibles at verse, I think it's verse 40. It should have continued on a few more verses because the very beginning of chapter 12 is really the exclamation point for what occurred in chapter 11. So this morning, even though we are starting a new chapter and we're starting a new study, in a sense, we're borrowing from all that we spent Weeks and weeks studying in chapter 11. When we went through chapter 11, it was over and over a great hall of faith. We have in America, for our sporting events, hall of fames. This was a great hall of faith, so to speak, of individuals who over time walked by faith. Now, everyone listed in chapter 11 was an Old Testament saint, meaning their exercise of faith was on the other side of the cross from us. They were looking forward to what Christ one day would do. They could not look back like we can and see what Christ accomplished. But chapter 11 goes to great lengths to prove that these individuals had genuine faith. When we get to heaven we will see the individuals named in chapter 11. It's a litany of men and women who exemplified by their lives, by their response to challenges, that they had genuine faith in God. They were not perfect men and women. In our Hall of Fame, so to speak, if you were to go to Cooperstown and look at baseball players or Canton, Ohio, and look at football players, you would look at them and say, wow, they're exceptional. I could never do what they could do because I can't hit a ball far enough. I can't throw a ball fast enough. I can't run fast enough. That's not the case in the great Faith Hall of Fame in Chapter 11. Everything they did, even though God won't call you to do the same thing, you're not going to be called to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
But the faith you have is the same as the faith they had. The faith you have can enable you to overcome your hurdles and obstacles. There were 18 named individuals that I counted again yesterday in chapter 11. There's references to many more. For example, there's a reference to the prophets. Well, that's a a large number of Old Testament people. Some of these individuals were, from our standpoint, famous. We see the name and we know who they are. Some were obscure that you might never have guessed had you been given a sheet of paper before we studied the chapter who these people were. Yet they were all saints of our Heavenly Father. There were obstacles thrown in their way. There were circumstances that went bad. They had hardships. They had trials. There were times where God said obey. And it might have seemed from a human perspective the best thing to do is just run away. These people, for all of their limitations, for all of their sin, for all of their faults, they exercised faith. And the point is we can too. They were faithful even though their hope was in the future. They were hopeful even though the Messiah had not physically come to the earth. There had only been prophecies about him. In fact, they exemplified the very definition of faith that's contained in the very first verse of Hebrews 11. In fact, look at Hebrews 11.1. Now, it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That certainly applied to their view of the Messiah. They had not seen Christ. They had heard some of the revelation of God about the one he would send one day. But their faith was exemplary. And it was exemplary not because of what they saw. They walked by faith, not by sight. And it was because of who they trusted. They believed God. At each point of faith that's referenced in Hebrews chapter 11, the ultimate issue is the individual who responded in faith trusted that what God said God would do. They believed that the God who promised could fulfill his promises. They believed that the God who said go would help them go. They believed that the God who said stand still And suffer persecution would deliver them one day ultimately with an eternal hope. Now I covered in a few minutes in a very cursory fashion what we spent 20 plus lessons covering as we dug into detail in life after life after life. Now for me personally, I have always loved history. So when we have a history chapter like chapter 11 where I'm going through, that just interests me. But I recognize not a lot of people enjoy history. Not everyone likes reading about history. I was a normal kid. I played every sport. I was outside every day. And yet I still would periodically ride my bike to the library and read history books. I loved the Civil War. I loved sports history. I loved World War II. I loved a lot of different things. So I would read. So for me, reading history is easy. It's not a big deal. But I know any time for many Americans, many people in our culture, when you start going about history, their eyes glaze over and they kind of numb and fall asleep because they don't care. And why don't they care? Well, for one thing, they say, well, the world's different. You know, World War II is interesting, but now we just drop a nuclear bomb and the war is 30 seconds. It's over. 
We don't have people like that. Nothing like that can happen again. You go back farther and farther, and it just seems detached. The world's different. It's rapidly changed. The world is different. Circumstances are different. So why bother studying about all that stuff in the past? Because it's not going to affect my life. You might get away with that when you're dealing with regular history. Maybe you don't need to understand the nuances of North and South relations and that led to the Civil War to live your life today, but it's not the case when it comes to biblical history. I think one of the things that is missing in the gap between knowledge and history and current life is because you come to the question, you go, so what? So what? I know a lot of useless information from reading and watching documentaries. I love that stuff. But at the end of the day, so what? I'm never going to be on Jeopardy. <laughs> what good's it going to do me? At the end of the day, how far is that really going to carry me? I don't teach history. But I don't want any of us to think that way about biblical history. Because in this context, as we get into the verses this morning, what we start with is the so what? Why does chapter 11 matter? We've studied all these people, all those who exercise faith, all these various things. Chapter 12 and the verses we're going to see... And you'll see quickly why it really is an extension of chapter 11. It's going to tell you, so what? You were supposed to read and learn and study about all of these great men and women of faith because of how you're supposed to apply it. And the reality is, when you're dealing with spiritual matters, when you're dealing with your life and my life as we walk daily trying to be obedient to the Lord... Or in some cases, some of us aren't trying to be obedient to the Lord. The reality is things have not changed since the time of the other great heroes of the faith. Because God is still holy. And God is still sovereign. And people are still sinners. And the world that we are walking on right now is still inhabited and cursed by sin. For all the differences in the world, there's a reality in which it's exactly the same. Sinners groping about in the dark, and we're supposed to be the light of the gospel. Just like they lived in hard circumstances, surrounded by sin, so we live today. We live with daily struggles. We live with physical weakness. We live with financial challenges. We deal with relational issues. We deal with conflict in society. We deal with conflicts in our family. We live in a society that increasingly and more and more publicly mocks our faith. It mocks what we believe. Looking a little bit bigger, we live with what seems like the constant threat of possibly another terrorist attack. It seems like the terrorists are whack-a-mole. You hit them here and they pop up over there. And you hit them over there and they popped up somewhere else. There's a sense in which if you think about things, you could almost have a temptation to just run and hide and wait for the Lord to come. Or wait to die. Apart from Christ, many people do figuratively run away. They start drinking. Or they take drugs. Or they consume themselves with things to distract them from the reality of what's going on around them. Now, I haven't watched this show in anything more than a passing fashion, but there's a television series where there are people in America that all they do is build bunkers so that they can go underground one day and close the door and survive. 
They got food in there. They got AC. They got filtration systems to make everything safe. They got water. And what they want to do ultimately is go down in their bunker one day and close the door and they got enough to keep everybody else out. I fear at times Christians almost want to adopt that attitude when it comes to the world we live in and when it comes to our lives. And I can assure you biblically it's not an option for us to go and live in a bunker. It's not even an option for us to wall ourselves off here at Lakeside in this building and only interact with each other. Running and hiding is not an option for a Christian no matter what happens in your life. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how difficult things are, no matter the hurdles and the obstacles and the challenges you face, you've got to keep going. Every one of us has to continue moving forward. We have to persevere no matter what. We have to keep going. Our Christian life, according to Scripture, Scripture quite often has used this sort of analogy or this picture, is like an athletic contest. In fact, I'm going to really emphasize that today because that's what our text is going to specifically talk about. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write down a verse for reference. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 is an illustration of this principle. In other words, when the Bible was written, quite often to make things understandable, they pick a common day circumstance that most people would relate to and, and then fit it in to the picture they're painting. So the Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you win? He's making it analogous to an athletic contest. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Paul says about himself, verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. He goes on to get into a boxing analogy. Second Timothy, Paul said something similar. In Second Timothy 2.5, he said, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Athletics were a big part of the culture of the day during the time of the New Testament, just like they're a big part of our culture. And in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews does something very similar. He takes our Christian life and puts it in the context of running a race. He takes the imagery from chapter 11 of all the individuals who have run the race before us and builds a case for us to endure and to persevere and to keep going based on their example of how they ran the race. So as we're looking this morning, we're looking at the Christian life in the context of a race. And it's a long race. And it's a race that we must finish if we know Christ. It's a race that's filled with obstacles and hurdles and pitfalls. But so was the race of the saints in chapter 11. It was filled with obstacles and hurdles. And they kept going... And the point is, so can we. So as we begin to study the text this morning, we're going to be looking, these verses go together, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, but I'm only going to teach through verse 1 this morning. But we're going to be talking about how we can run the Christian race that God sets before us. Really, what we're talking about is how can you live an effective Christian life? If I sat down with you one-on-one and we had an honest conversation 
and you profess to be a believer, and I asked you this question, if I said, do you want to live an effective Christian life, or do you want to be a failure? There's not one of you that will look me in the eyes and goes, you know what, I was really hoping to be a failure. <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot. I want to fail spectacularly. Can you help me? All the counseling I've done, nobody's ever walked in saying that. We want to be successful. We understand when we failed. We understand when we fall short. For some of us, it might seem like it's the 15th or the 16th time we've gotten up to the starting point. Or for some of us, we may have been on the track for a long time and we haven't even made one lap. But either way, the text that we're going to be studying is encouraging us to press on, to keep running, to keep competing. It's really telling us how we can live a life that allows us to take our place as heroes of the faith as well. Not because we did spectacular things, but because we humbly placed our lives in the hands of a faithful God. And we did it by faith. So as I go through and outline a text, I normally am trying to outline an entirety of a text at one at one point so that we can keep it in context and I just have a very simple four-part outline. I've got it four keys to running an effective race. I think that's the imagery of the text. That's what they're talking about. So I'm not going to belabor it. This is just four keys to running an effective race. And when we say that, what we're really saying is here are four steps to an effective Christian walk. This is how you live obediently. This is how you honor God with your life. So this morning we're going to cover the first two keys, but let's look at the first one. Here's the first key to running an effective race. Be encouraged by our faithful examples. Be encouraged by our faithful examples. I say this collectively because there's a sense in which we are all in this together. We are all running this race. And Chapter 12, verse 1, describes sort of a setting for our running the race. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Again, this is just a clear extension of chapter 11. All the people mentioned in chapter 11 are these witnesses. All the people that we spent weeks studying and going through are referenced by that. The word therefore is not referring to everything that preceded the first ten chapters. It's a very specific reference to the immediate context of talking about men and women who exercise faith. And he's saying, therefore, since they exercise faith. And he calls them a great cloud of witnesses. Now when we think of a cloud, I cannot help but think about the white things in the sky. That if we were in the middle of it, wouldn't necessarily look white. In this context, the imagery is not that they're all up hovering up in the skies with angels' wings or something. The idea is talking about the multitude, the amount of witnesses. There are a lot of saints who have preceded us in the faith. Now, if you ask me, the majority of people who have ever walked the planet don't know Christ, did not know Christ, did not have faith in God. Jesus himself, when he was talking about the, the broad path and the narrow path, said there are many on the broad path. There are few who find the narrow path. But there have always been some that God leads to that path. 
There are saints who preceded us. And the ones specifically mentioned by name and alluded to in chapter 11 are pictured as a huge assembly of people. And this imagery of surrounding us borrows from athletics as well. As I was reading through multiple commentaries, as I do after I've done a lot of initial study and I'm reading through and looking at thoughts, a a constant thing kept coming up. At that time, during the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, athletic contests were very big in the culture. And because the Romans were dominating things, they would have big Colosseum-type facilities, venues, to go and watch sporting events. If you've ever been to Rome, you know the Colosseum immediately pops into our heads. If you've seen it, even if you haven't been to Rome, you've seen it on TV, that really is what would happen. People would fill in, fill up the stadium, and they're watching the contest. In many respects, that's exactly what's going to happen this afternoon all over America. It happened yesterday all over the country at a football game. And the idea, if you think about it, if you're standing in the middle of a football field, if you did a 360, what are you going to see everywhere? People. Crowds all the way around you. That's the imagery here. That we have a crowd of witnesses, people who have walked by faith, and their lives are meant to encourage us, to cheer us on, to push us forward. He's not saying they're literally sitting around watching us. What he's saying, though, is that their example, their testimony, everything he's told us about their faith is like an athletic stadium filled with people who are cheering for you to complete the race. All of these saints of God surrounding us, trying to help us. One commentator used an illustration that I thought was effective. And whenever we start talking about running races or athletic contests, I think about football. I think about the Olympics. I think about running events. But he said this, and this is just imagery, but I think it is helpful. He said, you could almost picture, this is like a relay race in the Olympics. You know, if you have a four-by-something relay, one person's carrying the baton, and they carry it so far, and then they hand it off to the next person. They normally don't go and take a nap. You know what they're doing? They're watching. Let's go. Keep going. And they're watching around the track. And then it's passed to the next person. And it's this image of that sort of what's happened over the Christian faith is one generation passing the baton to the next generation. And when we got the baton, which is now, and we're supposed to be going, the other people are carriages and cheering us on. They're doing it by their lives. They're doing it by their example. They're doing it by the fact that as we're going, we can remember, oh, They could accomplish that. Oh, I remember. They overcame an obstacle. They overcame a hurdle. They were able to do things in their weakness. They were able to do things when they were terrified. The entire picture of that little clause at the beginning of chapter 12 is one of encouragement. We're not supposed to look at them and think, wow, they did something I could never do. And I couldn't hit. 714 home runs like Babe Ruth, that's not it. No, these are the type of people that we're looking at and we're saying, I can do it, I can press on, I can emulate them. If their faith allowed them to run the race to completion, then our faith can enable us to run our race to completion and their lives and testimonies are designed to encourage us on to take those last steps. 
Now, I'm going to make reference to marathon running several times today, in part because it's accurate. The race of the Christian life is not a 100-meter dash. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long time. A marathon is 26.2 miles. And part of the reason I will use the marathon analogy is because I think that fits with what he's talking about, a long race that requires endurance and stamina. And there's plenty of places where you can drop out, and he's saying, press on. But also, because I happen to have run two marathons. Debbie and I have run two marathons. So I know something of what it takes to prepare yourself to run and complete the race. Pastor Steve, if he were here, he's in the new members class. If he were here, I think he's run 18 or 19. Some of the other of you may have run marathons. You understand what it's like. But I want to tell you something that surprised me in the first marathon I ran. In 2006, I ran a marathon in San Diego. And it was interesting to me what I saw at the finish line. Now, I could tell you it was interesting what I saw at the starting line, too, but that's not relevant for our analogy or for our picture. What surprised me as I got farther and farther into the race is the diversity of body types that were completing a marathon. (laughs) You know, I have a picture of this tall, slender person who just runs like the wind. I'm not tall. I was slenderer than I am now. But you picture these athletic and buff people, and there were people like that running. I mean, you just take a picture and stick them on the cover of a fitness magazine because they're just in shape. But there were other people that didn't look like they were in shape, and they were still going. I'll never forget, and it was the oddest thing to me. It's one of those things you puzzle over. I was at mile 20 plus. Now, if you've run a marathon, that's a long ways already. You get mile 20 plus, you're way down there. And a big woman ran past me. (laughs) And I was astounded for a number of reasons. (laughs) Number one, not that a woman was faster, but she was big. And if I had seen her, I would have said she couldn't run a mile. She had no type of body type that looked anything. And yet at mile 20 plus, slow and steady, she was passing. Here was the point. God's given us all kinds of different circumstances to run the marathon. Some of our background, some of our training, some of our opportunities might make us look like we're a world-class marathon runner. We've got the nice equipment. We look good. Some of us look a little bit rickety going to the starting line. You sure he's going to be able to make it onto the track? I'm not even sure those shoes are any good. What's he thinking? If you know Christ, you're called to run. It doesn't matter what privileges you've had. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter anything. God's given you a race to run, and each of us have a unique course. The finish line is always the same, but point A to point B can be different for every one of us. Don't allow yourself to, talk, to be talked out of competing in the run because you look and say, well, they look better than I do. Well, they look more competent than I am. Well, they can do it, I can't do it. No. That's the whole point of chapter 11. These men and women were not perfect. They were not super saints. They were humble sinners who had come to the place where they trusted God. If that's you, then you get on the track and you start running. Don't worry about your equipment. Don't worry about how good you look. You run. 
we see people like Pastor Steve and we can get intimidated. Because he stands week after week and he's been doing it for over 30 years and he opens up the word of God and he understands it at such a great depth and yet it looks effortless. It's not effortless. He puts in hours and hours and hours of study but none of us see that. And you look at somebody like him and go, I could never know what he knows. Or you flip on the TV, and I'm not talking about the heretic preachers, but there are some good preachers on TV, and you listen to them, and you go, wow, that guy is smooth. Man, do you hear how he made those? I could never do anything like that. That's just too good. Or you read books by people, and they put these thoughts into print, and you go, wow, they're so brilliant. They're so smart. I could never do any of that. Don't allow yourself to be intimidated. There's a difference about the Christian race. We're not competing with each other. It doesn't matter if somebody goes a little bit faster than you or a little bit slower than you. The goal is for everybody to finish. This isn't a competition where only one person gets a gold medal. If you're in Christ, every one of us has an interest in every other one of us making it to the finish line. That's the goal. The diversity of the ages and the occupations and the stages of life of all of the saints cataloged in chapter 11, this great cloud of witnesses is reflective of our diversity today. The different backgrounds, the different ages. If we're in Christ, we can finish the race just like they did. That's the encouragement. No matter what God brought us out of or no matter what God might lead us into, we can compete and finish. We are an easily discouraged group. Just this week, I probably was more discouraged than I've been in a long time driving home from work one day. I was frustrated and there was a sinful part of me that thought, I'm tired and I'm done and I don't want to deal with it. I was ready to go for one of those bunkers. As long as it had TV, it's football season. But that is sinful foolishness rearing its head in my life. That is sinful self-pity that goes, oh, I wish things were different. I haven't been put in prison this week for my faith. I haven't been cut in two, literally, with a saw, like one of the Old Testament saints referenced in chapter 11. People who have endured far worse than poor me kept going. And that's the incentive for me and that's the incentive for you to press on. To not be distracted, to not be dissuaded. All of this is to encourage us. It's not to make us feel guilty. Granted, if you're not walking by faith, you should have a true guilt brought about by the Spirit of God that is conviction that causes you to repent and turn. But it's not supposed to be a self-pitying guilt that just goes and sits in a corner and says, okay, well, I'm done. No, every aspect of chapter 11 says, get up, keep going. I don't care how many times you fell off the track. I don't care how many times your shoes got untied. I don't care how many people passed you. You keep going. That's the encouragement. So the first key to running an effective race is to be encouraged by our faithful examples. It's later than I thought it was. I don't know that I'm going to finish all my material today, but that's okay. Um, we'll go as far as we go. 
So the first key to running an effective race, be encouraged by our faithful examples. Remember the lives of men and women of faith who've gone before us. Second is this, be diligent to remove hindrances to our run. Be diligent to remove hindrances to our run. It says this in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what should we do? Well, let's read. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, I think I've shared with you before, when I'm first studying a text, I'm writing out notes to myself. I'm writing out questions to myself. And the very first question that I asked when I came to this little section is, does encumbrance equal sin? In other words, is he saying, get rid of every encumbrance and let me define what encumbrance is. You know, these are synonymous terms and it's one thought. Or is he talking about two different things? And my study leads me to believe he's talking about two different things that ultimately have the same impact on our race. So when he says every encumbrance, I don't think that is synonymous with and equal to the exact same thing as the sin that so easily entangles. So remembering our sports context, not that I created, but that the text created, that the author of Scripture created, we need to look at what does it mean, encumbrance. We're supposed to lay aside every encumbrance. During those days, and it's not that different now, runners understood that weight was an enemy. The heavier you were, the more you were wearing, the slower you became. If you were carrying weight, you were not going to go fast. In fact, for all of our talk about things being immodest and the culture being different, at that time, a lot of athletes ran basically naked because there was nothing that was going to slow them down. And while we are more proper and we wear clothes... You need only to watch the Olympics or any track meet to understand the principle is still valid. How many of you have ever seen a runner in an Olympic race wearing a backpack? <laughs> you just don't. You're not wearing a backpack. That's not what you do to run. You don't see a runner in the Olympics running with their luggage in the suitcases. If they did, it would be, that would be interesting. Why would you do it? Because it would be so foolish. It's just so silly to even think about it. Why would you carry things that keep you from running the race? The reality is that's the type of imagery that's being talked about with every encumbrance. Looking at your life and saying, what is slowing me down? What is making me ineffective? He's going to talk about sin separately. That connector and could have, mean, could have meant that this is one thought, or it could mean two thoughts. Like I said, it's two thoughts. He's going to deal in a moment with sin. So I think encumbrance here is talking about the things in life that weigh us down that aren't necessarily inherently sinful. His point is that we're supposed to lay that down. Picturing the analogy, you've got a backpack on and you're in a foot race, take the backpack off, throw it. Lay it down. You're, you're, you're carrying luggage? Hey, you've got to go faster. Put the luggage down. Let's go. 
And this is very personal to each one of us. And it can be very challenging because, as I said, the encumbrance that is being talked about here is not necessarily something that is inherently sinful. So the question that each of us has to go and look in the mirror this week and ask ourselves is, what non-sinful things are hindering my effectiveness? What is keeping me from being fully committed to run the race that God has put in front of me? For some people, it may be that you're entertaining yourself too much. I would not say that it's always inherently sinful, for example, to watch a football game. Goodness, if that was sinful, I'm in trouble. But it may be sinful if you're obsessed with it, if you don't ever stop watching. If all you ever do is watch movies, if all you ever do is watch TV, you may have an encumbrance in your life that you've got to figure out a way to put the clicker down. Maybe it's too much time spent on Facebook. Well, I just want to know what's going on in people's lives and prayer requests. Yeah, but then you are obsessed with it and you're not doing anything else. I know I have to be very careful because for all of my joking, I can become obsessed with sports because I love it. And if I'm not careful, I can spend too much time watching Florida State or watching the Yankees. For some, it may be too much time spent counting and recounting the volume in our investment portfolio or obsessing over the lack of something in our investment portfolio. Maybe it's that we are too committed to too many activities. We're doing so many things that we're a mile wide and an inch deep. And we're doing all of them at a C grade when we might should only do one or two at an A grade. You need to take inventory of your life just like I need to take inventory of my life. Right now, I'm not physically in shape. I'm not currently running. I hope to start running soon. But when I'm serious about running, I am very particular before I go for a run. I wear a very specific type of shoes, and I only wear them for a certain distance. After about 300 miles, I buy a new pair of shoes because I know the feeling in my feet of the difference between the shoes. I wear a special type of shorts. I wear a special type of shirt. I'm very careful. I don't carry my wallet. I don't carry my keys. I don't carry a cell phone. Why? Because I know I could make it out of my neighborhood wearing anything, but 10 miles in, it's going to matter. I've got to be prepared for the long haul, for the endurance. That's the Christian life. That's what we're looking at. We need to take stock. We need to take inventory. And if there's anything, even if it's not sinful, that is hindering our effectiveness in walking the Christian walk of living the Christian life, we need to lay it aside. We need to throw it overboard. Paul in the book of Acts was on a ship and the ship was getting ready to sink and it was in a storm. What are they doing? They're throwing everything overboard. They've got to do whatever they can to keep the ship afloat. That's not a bad imagery of what we should be doing with our lives. If it's not helping us advance the cause of Christ, if it's detracting from our ability to do the things that God's called us to do, maybe we need to step away from it and get rid of it. So let me encourage you. I'm going to stop here for today. I'll get into next week that sin which so easily entangles us. But we already have enough 
for me to ask you a few probing questions, and I would encourage you to think this way. Number one, are you running the race at all? Do you know Christ? You know, Jesus describes a circumstance where there's a broad path and there's a whole lot of people making progress, and they're going straight to hell. Our race is run on a narrow path. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Say it another way. You aren't even in the race unless you've come through Christ. But if you know Christ, where are you now in your marathon? For some of us, you may be sitting down at a water break. Get up. Keep moving. Others of you might have pulled a hamstring or injured a calf. That's okay. Keep going. Maybe you ran off the track so many times you're not sure that God wants you on the track. Get back on. And examine your life. Are you running the Christian walk with a backpack and luggage and a vacuum cleaner and a bowling ball and all kinds of other things that keep you from being what you know from Scripture God wants you to be? Let me encourage you. Begin to do the self-examination this week. We're all in this together. When you come back next week, and I'll tell you some more about how we're supposed to run this race. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that you give us. And Lord, we thank you that you put a race in front of us, and yet you enable us to complete the race. Lord, we don't need to go to a specialty store to get equipment. You've given us all we need for life and godliness in your word your spirit can take your word and do anything necessary to make us effective athletes to complete the race. We pray for that work in our lives. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are broken and discouraged this morning. Help them to stand up. Help them not to worry about how other runners look. Help them to stand up and start moving forward. Even if it's walking or crawling, Lord, help them understand the need to be moving forward for your kingdom. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.